Hey, it's Sean Fennessy. We've got something special cooking on the Prestige TV podcast. I'll be recapping one of my favorite shows, HBO's Barry, every Sunday night with the writer-director star of the show, the great Bill Hader. We'll talk about the show's wild twists and turns, its special brand of dark comedy, and how it all came together. So on Sunday nights, immediately after a new episode airs, you can hear Bill and I break it all down on the Prestige TV pod. Subscribe on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase, every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is supported by H&R Block. Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with their no-surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a Block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season is better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com slash guarantees. I'm Sean Fennessy. And I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about Top Gun Maverick. At long last... We are talking about the long-awaited sequel to the 1986 Tom Cruise fighter pilot classic. How long have we been waiting? Well, it's been 36 years since the original film, 12 years since development began on this movie, and 1,050 days since Top Gun Maverick was initially set to be released. First reshoots, then a global pandemic has made this maybe the most long-awaited completed film in modern movie history. So how is the movie? We will discuss all of it in a non-spoiler fashion today. And after Amanda and I discuss the movie, I'll have a conversation with Mavericks director Joseph Kaczynski about the exceptional accomplishments of this movie. But first, I just want to have a brief mention of the passing of the late, great actor Ray Liotta, who died sadly today, uh, 67 years old. Of course, listeners of this show, of the Rewatchables, know how much we love Ray Liotta, the star of Goodfellas, of Something Wild, of Unlawful Entry, of Karina Karina, of Copland, of a great many movies over the years. Most recently, he was probably the very best thing in The Many Saints of Newark, the Sopranos prequel that was released. And just an incredible actor, an actor of extraordinary chaos, skill, and verve. And uh, we'll miss him very much. Amanda, you were a Ray Liotta fan. Of course. I was also thinking, I thought you were going to say most recently in Marriage Story, which, uh, you know, some pivotal roles. It's hard to stand up to Laura Dern's character in that movie, but he sure did. And, you know, of course, uh, as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Um, Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Condolences to his family. Okay, let's pivot now, perhaps inelegantly, to Top Gun Maverick. This is... um. This is a movie you've been yelling about into a microphone, Amanda, for three on years. Yes. And and uh, did you like it? I cried three times. So <laughs> I, that's, yes, I loved it. I, I cried because of those three years of waiting and, and really a lifetime of waiting for me and for Tom Cruise and for all of us together. It was a really emotional experience for me. Um, 
in part because I've decided to make this into like a huge bit on this podcast and like tie my entire like all life events to seeing this movie. But it paid off. Like I definitely had that experience of it. it was the first time I had been back in theaters since I believe December. Um, and that was meaningful. It was finally getting to do this thing that had put off, been put off for so long because of world events. Uh, also a little bit because of personal events. When you said like 1060 days, I mean, I thought pregnancy was long, but like waiting <laughs> for this movie was like three times it somehow, which I, I can't even believe. Um, and we'll talk a bit more about this, but this, this movie is about, uh, obviously people dogfighting in the air, but also it's about life and it's about waiting for things or reflecting on what has happened and, and, and what is to come and a little bit like of a one last ride mentality. And I was certainly in a place to receive all of those emotions. How about that? Yeah, I was too. Usually when a movie is long delayed, its expectations are held against it. And it's very hard to live up to something that it takes us a long time to see after hearing about it for many years. This was the exact opposite for me. Um, I mentioned on the Tom Cruise Hall of Fame earlier this week that I do not have a big relationship to the original Top Gun movie. I do, of course, love Tom Cruise. And I was just totally knocked out. I was like, this is what kind of mainstream Hollywood movies can do at their best. Is this the most significant emotional work of cinema ever made? No, of course not. It's no. it's, a, it's a sequel to Top Gun. So let's not misconstrue what I'm trying to say. But as far as thrill rides go, as far as tying a bow on an epic journey of one character's storyline, like it's pretty damn satisfying. And it's so rare that we get these event movies where you walk out and you're like, God damn, that was good. You know, I really, really liked that. I can't wait to see that again. And this totally had that sensation for me. Before we go a little further, let me just um, let me give a, a, a brief snapshot of what the story of the movie is about. And I'll do it in a largely non-spoiler way. I think we're going to be talking about this movie quite a bit more in the future on the show. And we'll have some deep dives coming up. But we want to at least give people a sense of what they can look forward to, what they can expect. And, you know, what we liked in the broad strokes. So, you know, Pete Maverick Mitchell, the cruise character, has spent the past 35 years dodging advancement and rank that would ground him. And he wants to keep flying. Maverick wants to continue to fly, even into his 50s. So all these years later, he's still flying for the Navy, still pursuing that need for speed. And then an admiral shows up in the form of Ed Harris, who wants to ground him, who wants him to slow down, who wants him to, you know, pivot his career, enter the final phase of his career. And that means going back to the United States Navy Strike Fighter Tactics Instructor Program, which is, of course, also known as Top Gun. And that's where he's got to confront his past and train some new inductees into Top Gun. Bobby, can you put like the gong, you know, sound like the chime, like the as the movie does from time to time as well. I just feel like we need like as soon as you say Top Gun, we just need that. Can you do it again right now? I'm just going to say Top Gun. (laughs) Put it in. (laughs) Top Gun. Every time we say Top Gun. You will hear that beautiful. I don't know if it's a, is it a, zon, a xylophone? Is it a gong? Is gong. it a? It's a beautiful sound that Harold Faltermeyer created for the original film, and that's a good way to pivot into this conversation because this movie has many, many echoes of the original film, but it is also completely its own beast. So, for you, Amanda, you know you love the original. Did you feel like you the fluency of the original was kind of essential to enjoying this movie? Not essential because. 
can you really be fluent in in Top Gun? I mean, you can, and there are a lot of specific callbacks and moments and and winks. Um, but it is not a particularly intricate uh, setup. Uh, it's it's pretty much. I think some of its power is in its like dumb beauty, right, and in its lack of specifics or getting bogged down in anything except like ooh, like big plane go fast, and you know, like I have feelings, and also maybe want to sleep with all of my best friends, and <laughs> but you know, they're they're all like essential feelings, and so I think you can walk into this movie and it and have it hit those same notes um except for maybe the homoeroticism which gets transferred into another pretty like f- primal set of emotions so it's fine you can access all of it without knowing you know that the certain scenes are almost like a beat for beat reconstruction of what happens in top gun which like it pretty much is. It is its own beast, but they also the first twenty minutes. Uh, I'll just say that the credit sequence like might be familiar to you, and then um, the setup you just described, where Tom Cruise finds his way back to Top Gun. Like the planes are different, like the program is different, but you know Maverick does some Maverick stuff and like gets sent to Top Gun, and then we're off. Exact same. So you can appreciate what it owes to the original, but because of its simplicity, it can stand on its own. How about that? I agree with that. I've been thinking about this a lot in contrast to a number of other legacy sequels that we can talk about here throughout the show and kind of the idea of taking a long break in a story and then returning to that story. And I made this whole long list and was thinking about the movies and you know, thinking about Mad Max Fury Road and thinking about... Um, you know, Tron Legacy, a, a, a another Joe Kaczynski movie, and there was a Space Jam movie recently, Blade Runner 2049, Creed. We've seen this many times. And the movie I keep coming back to is Star Wars The Force Awakens because in many ways, this movie has a lot in common with Star Wars The Force Awakens, which is that the structure and the kind of emotional beats of the movie are very, very similar to the original Star Wars. And frankly, Top Gun Maverick has a lot in common with the original Star Wars when you get down to it in terms of the storyline. But Star Wars The Force Awakens was considered a copy of something that was so perfect in and of its place. Top Gun is iconic and beloved, but there's not a lot of people who think it is a truly great film. You know, that it's not, it doesn't feel like it's a it's a truly great act of artifice and a and a beautiful relic of its time. And people love that movie, but there's not a lot a strong critical case for it out in the world. It's it's a much more emotional relationship to it and so that leaves it in this interesting place where maverick can actually improve upon it in a couple of significant ways and for me the number one way in which it improves upon it is like the filmmaking and the storytelling i actually think is just better than the original as much as i love tony scott and as much as i love the performances in the original top gun this movie is candidly i thought a better movie than the original of course it is yeah of course it is and i i think on paper well not Practically and just logically, yes, it's a better movie. And some of that is because, you know, it was made 40 years later, 35 years later. And so what they can do, like the planes are different and how they can film the planes is is different. And they they do an amazing job. And I'm really excited to listen to your conversation with Joseph Kaczynski because uh, like it's incredible, like the practical filmmaking that they they do. 
I do also think that there is like slightly more thought and like slightly less, you know, illicit substances going into how the movie gets put together. <laughs> it's less without, cokey like, is what you're saying. Yeah, <laughs> except right. Without casting any aspersions on the um, original Top Gun crew. So yeah, it's more sensical. There's less kind of like joking or whatever. I mean, you know, there's a lot of unintentional like comedy or greatness in the original Top Gun. Everything from the volleyball scene to the like complete lack of chemistry between Tom Cruise and Kelly McGillis and um the multiple shower scenes for no reasons and <laughs> like, you know, like some lines that have become truly iconic, not just like I feel the need for speed, but also like take me to bed or lose me forever, you know, which is a Meg Ryan like one liner. And so all of those things are so absurd that to me, they do kind of transcend to a higher form of art. But this is probably the top. The original Top Gun is probably the closest I get to like loving a bad, good movie um, and understanding how a bad, good movie can like become just good good because of like the confluence of events and the top gun maverick is just like a good movie yes it it doesn't require any asterisks on it yeah it, um you know it looks sounds and just feels incredible it's a movie that like really you can feel yourself shaking while watching the movie and I, i'll just say for anybody who's listening to this and hasn't seen the movie yet see this movie in a movie theater for one if you feel comfortable doing so Two, try to see it in a good movie theater I was I was fortunate to see this movie in the Dolby room at an AMC and yes. it was exhilarating in that format because the sound is so essential and you know like we talk a lot about like whether or not a movie feels like it is um you know how careful the filmmakers are treating every aspect of the movie and in some cases you watch some of these like big event tentpole CGI movies and you can almost like feel them racing to the finish line this movie feels like the exact opposite it has so much respect for the thing that it's trying to do Every little mechanical and creative decision feels really, really um, overwhelmingly managed in a good way. And so, like, there's a way to respect that by putting yourself in a position to enjoy the movie as much as possible. And, you know, it's it's in part, I think, because of Kaczynski and because of the writing and, of course, because of Tom Cruise, who's a producer and the, you know, creative shepherd of the Maverick character and, frankly, his entire industry, as we talked about earlier this week. But, um... I think they made a really good jo choice with Kaczynski. And, you know, we did mention how Cruz is in this stage of only working with filmmakers that he's basically previously vetted at this point in the last 10 years or so. You know, he worked with Kaczynski on 2013's Oblivion. He worked with Ed Zwick again on a Jack Reacher movie. He, of course, has this longstanding partnership with Christopher McQuarrie on the Mission Impossible movies. McQuarrie, notably, is a co-writer of this movie. And it sure feels at times a little bit like a Mission Impossible movie as well. So that's memorable. But Kaczynski... He might be like the most underrated Big Tent director we have right now. Um, I really liked talking to him. I really think people should listen to the conversation because he was very specific about how they did what they did in a very understandable way, which many, frankly, many filmmakers either won't do or can't do. And so he's obviously put a lot of thought into the how of things, but also I think a little bit of the how of the story. And you need both of those things. You need to be able to pull off these breathtaking fighter pilot sequences. And you also need to make us care about Maverick and make us care about these new characters that are introduced and also make the movie look beautiful. And movies like this don't always look beautiful. Sometimes they look like CGI crap. And a lot of this movie was made tradi shot traditionally, pragmatically, in real planes, you know, with real fl flight choreography. And the stuff that is CGI, for the most part, 
looks pretty seamless. And that's a, mm-hmm. a signature of Kaczynski, whether it's Tron Legacy or Only the Brave. Like the movies that he's made are often have a lot of digital imagery in them, but he works very hard to make them seem, if not naturalistic, at least part of a coherent world. So I think just from a visual perspective and from like a kind of narrative mechanical storytelling perspective, really, really, really well done. Um, I wanted to ask you about the writing in the movie mm-hmm. and the and the and the story and kind of where we pick up from the story. Uh, you know, I, it struck me as sincere but not gloopy or sentimental. It does have a kind of like Americana hokiness that's at the center of the Top Gun story. But did did you like the the story? Did you like the dialogue? What did you make of it? So you mentioned that there is some like Mission Impossible overtones to this, and I I was also struck by the um, the Ethan Huntness of. Uh, the the Maverick character, Ethan Hunt, obviously being the character that Tom Cruise plays in the Mission Impossible movies and who has uh, evolved into a real messianic figure as those and also just like a ridiculous person who, you know, flies a helicopter onto a spaceship, you know, and then takes the motorcycle back down or whatever. Um, so the, the way that they incorporate Maverick back into Top Gun the school and in, into this new generation of pilots is ultimately like pretty Ethan Hunty and it works and we know that works because we have like a whole franchise that does really well that has been like Tom Cruise's lifeline for the past 15 years so it was it was amusing and I thought it was clever and to go with what works um and I thought I, I'm excited to talk more about Tom Cruise's performance and I don't know how much we can spoil, but they they do a good job, I think, of balancing like the maverickness, which is sort of the defining element of like the first 15 years of Tom Cruise's career, as we talked about on the Tom Cruise podcast before he, you know, like a little edgier, a little uh, more assholey, a little bit more. It's got to like bring this guy down a few rungs before he can go be the best that he can be, which is Maverick in a nutshell. And there are elements of that, but it also incorporates the age and incorporates everything else that Tom Cruise has been up to for the last 15 years. Um, You can definitely read this movie as uh, a referendum on Tom Cruise saving the movie industry. Literally, things are said to this character, such as the future is coming and you're not in it. Uh, and Tom Cruise is throughout just being like, yeah, we may not do this anymore or this may be over, but like not yet. And then goes and does uh, things that the Navy doesn't do anymore, but also that most people who make movies don't make anymore. Uh, So I enjoyed that. I like definitely picked up that signal. I like to think that that's intentional and Tom Cruise knows what he's doing. Once again, it goes back to like the level of self-awareness um, that seems both like palpable and also sometimes completely absent from a Tom Cruise experience. But yeah, it like it works. It's clever and it comments on Tom Cruise as much as it comments on the original or just like reproduces the original. Simultaneously, you also can feel when he is in training sessions with these young Top Gun pilots, you know, played by Miles Teller and, and our beloved Glenn Powell and, mm-hmm. you know, Jay Ellis and a handful of other um, exciting young actors, you can kind of 
feel him teaching them how to be a movie star. You know, that there is a way to read it directly into, if you want to do this, this is what it takes. To the point of him obviously having to insert himself into the epic conclusion of this story. You know, it's like, if you want to do it, you got to do it yourself. There's something to that. Um, what about uh, the um, kind of callbacks to the original film? Because, you know, you talked about the volleyball and kind of the, the homoerotic yeah. subtext of the original film. And, you know, it, it's not spoiling anything to say that Miles Teller's character plays Rooster, who is the son of Goose, who is, mm -hmm. of course, Maverick's late partner in flight and, and, and dear friend who died tragically in the first film played by Anthony Edwards. Um, the constant like callbacks, you know, not just the Harold Faltermeyer, but some of these storytelling beats or even some of the visual cues, like did that stuff work for you? Did you like it? Yeah, of course. I mean, I like fan service just as much as anybody else. It's just like, I never get fan service. Like <laughs> the things that I'm a fan of don't often get like recreated this way. So sure, let Miles Teller play the piano. Sounds great. <laughs> by the way, Miles Teller with the mustache looks so much like the son of Anthony Edwards. It's like really amazing. It's great casting. And I know Glenn Powell wanted that role and like was very disappointed when he didn't get it. And Tom Cruise had to convince him to become hangman who is the Iceman stand and they like didn't even try to, to <laughs> that's fine. I liked it, you know, and there is something about, they do recreate like the obviousness and the dumbness of Tom, of Top Gun, the original in like very sublime ways, such as like hangman for Iceman. Like you don't even have to try. Um, but I think Miles Teller works and like, you know, is looks so convincingly like Goose's son and then Glenn Powell just gets to have the time of his life being literal Iceman again. You know, like, he doesn't do the teeth thing at any point, which I think is smart. You know, he doesn't, like, do the gnashing, like, Val Kilmer meme because you wouldn't. That would make it an SNL sketch. But he is, he is like, almost doing the weird breathing and really using that grin in in what is a Val Kilmer Iceman homage. And I just have to say, I love it. I just, I loved it. And every time, you know, they would play like the, the Top Gun gong or the, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but I will just say, and I think this is in the trailer, so it's okay. The first of the three times that I cried was when Tom Cruise goes back to, to Miramar and is once again on his motorcycle, like racing down with the, you know, as he does in the first. And I believe that the Top Gun theme is playing in the new one, even though it's Danger Zone in the original, whatever. I just was like, I, we're all here together and we did it. And I started crying. Like, that's what can make me cry. So did the callbacks work for me, Sean? Yes, they did. So what you're saying is you cried at the pastoral beauty of the American military complex. Yeah. Yes. I mean, <laughs> can wait. So can we talk about that writing for a minute? Yeah. Because, you know, famously in the original, well, famously in the original, like the Navy basically underwrote the movie, which uh, I, perhaps there were some arrangements here as well. I'm actually not uh, familiar with like how involved the the Navy was in, ma in the making of Top Gun Maverick, but I know that they were very involved in Top Gun and had script approval. And that was the only way that the um, that Tony Scott and the original filmmakers could have access to the, the planes. And so, you know, it is this Reagan-era-esque, jingoistic, like, yay planes. But it's also um, really anonymous and absent of conflict. Like, they never... The, the MiGs are Russian planes, but they don't say Russia. They're in the Indian Ocean, but no adversary is named... 
Um, there, like, there are no specifics, which is uh, like very creepy in its own way. But they're trying to avoid any sort of geopolitical comment. Um, they pretty much do that again in this one. I they said NATO at one point, right? Yes, like, but the the, I, the 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 country of origin in which the mission takes place is not identified, and the, right. again, once again, the the quote unquote villain is not identified. Um, right. For for me, that worked. And maybe in a way that it didn't work in the original Top Gun. And maybe that's just a, a, a function of the time when the film is released. And you could certainly see a world in which Russia was the, you know, was the villain in this movie, just given the circumstances in Ukraine over the last few months. Right. But I, I felt relieved to not have a politicized Top Gun movie, honestly. Yeah, of course. Even though in some ways, and especially given the, like, the, drone aspects of this plot which they go pretty lightly on as well again they're Mm -hmm. just like not trying to touch anything geopolitical with a thousand foot pole um but there is like something sinister about like the kind of anonymity of it or just like that we're just not even going to think about it if you try to think about it i'm obviously choosing not to think about it because thought as we learned if you think up there you die sean and so if like thought and Top Gun don't go together, I honestly feel like we're being too like intellectual already in this podcast. I don't feel like I, I we're like twenty minutes in, thirty minutes in. I want to let people know like I do have more heat to bring to this. I feel like if I'm like letting you down right now, it's because I'm trying to be restrained. <laughs> You're it's penned I'm in by to, not revealing details. Yeah, I'm trying like not to spoil. Um, but I, you know, I, I I'll get there because that's the spirit of this movie. Well, one of the interesting things about that point that you're making is this movie feels even more so like a fantasy. And I mentioned this to Kaczynski because not only is there no kind of clear enemy in the in the storytelling, we don't even really know what year it is. And also the way that the the idea of the Top Gun program in 2022 is sort of farcical. Um, the idea of like war engagement taking place the way it might have in 1986 is just that's not how war is 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 fought. And so with that in mind, like, it just kind of feels like we're in another universe. It doesn't really feel like we're in like a practical story of American ingenuity and courage. It's there's something it's different. It is like in its way, it has become more of a franchise entertainment. And I don't say this to kind of cast aspersions, but it's like Top Gun has become a Marvel movie. You know what I mean? Like it's got its own little like universe of story. It doesn't really mean anything in terms of the geopolitical circumstances of 2022. And I think that's okay. Now, if look, if you feel like this is valorizing the military industrial complex, of course it is. Like, yeah. it's, a, it's a movie about you're, the Navy. You're correct. Yeah. Yes. Like, I, that's not, you have not pro- made a profound point by identifying that. And if that bothers you, I, I understand that because, of course, the military is a very uh, complex institution and who runs it versus who participates in it is very different. And this is in part a movie about bureaucracy and in part a movie about somebody who's trying to break bureaucracy. And so you could do, you could have a reading of the movie that, that does celebrate Maverick while not celebrating necessarily the entire system of the military. That's kind of not really here nor there. Like that's just not what the movie is. It's not, I'm not sure it's even worthy of that kind of a deep reading. Like it's a thrill ride movie. It's a, it's an amusement park movie. Like, which is the most American reading of all, which, but that's, you know, that's fine. Just ignore it and focus on the fun, big, dumb stuff. It, It is, it's, and I mean this sincerely as a compliment. It's an amusement park ride. Like it in, in the, in the best way to the point that as soon as I got out, I texted you, I want to go again. Like that. I mean, it is that like you get off the roller coaster and you just like, you want to go again. Um, and you try not to think about any of the consequences. 
I will say this movie has one of the all time opening credits I've ever seen in a movie. And when I saw this hit the screen, I was like, we are so, so, so blessed. And it, the yeah. credit, the credit reads music by Harold Faltermeyer, Hans Zimmer, Lorne Balfe and Lady Gaga. Tremendous. What'd you, you think of the Gaga song? Honestly, it totally passed me by. And I know that I, I saw that. <laughs> I saw that people or people pointed out that the like the motif or one of the melodies was like incorporated throughout the, the movie. I guess I hadn't listened to the song enough to recognize it when I went. I've only seen this movie once. I am going again tonight, guys. Don't worry. Uh, got childcare locked down. Uh, <laughs> just, just going solo. Where are you seeing it? I'm seeing it solo as well tonight. I'm going to. We can do this offline. How about that? You don't want to. You don't want to be spotted. I mean, no. I. I guess I'm going to the La Cunada because I oh, can okay. reserve the seat. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm going to the draft house. That's amazing that we're seeing okay. it solo, the same night at different places. Okay. The thing about the draft house, the parking really stresses me out. It, it is stressful. Um, so I. I mean, I. Li- I like the experience, but anyway, we can talk about that a different time. Could someone please buy the arc light? Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so the Lady Gaga thing kind of like passed me by, but let me just say once again, like I huge supporter of Lady Gaga, all of her, you know, movie efforts. Also, historically, I'm a woman who loves an end credits theme song that just really defines movie going to me in a powerful way. We don't need to speak about some of the other people who have made great contributions, uh, right now we'll get to it. Um, so I'm looking forward to revisiting it. What about Jennifer Connelly and John Hamm? These are two very well-known figures that are inserted into the story. Jennifer Connelly is herself a callback because she mm-hmm. plays Penny Benjamin, who a character yeah. who is mentioned briefly in the original film, the daughter of an admiral. And she right. gets her day in the sun. What, what'd you think of Connelly? Um, I would like her wardrobe. I was <sighs> like, oh, I'm aging. And this, like, this is where I'd like to go. This is my... like amazing fisherman sweaters. I mean, she's clearly doing sort of like the nautical San Diego, you, you know, naval theme. There's a sailing scene. She looks great. Um, that's really the only time she gets to do anything, but whatever. Do you think that they film that sailing sequence without any co-pilots, without any co-captains? Because it looks like it's you just know, the two of them on that boat. Yeah, they've been suspiciously silent about the sailing sequence. And it's like, we know a lot about Tom Cruise flying things and training other people to fly things. There's a great piece on The Ringer by Jake Kring's Trifles about like the Top Gun pilot school that Tom Cruise set up for all like the, the young guns. And so we know a lot about that and we know nothing about how they filmed the sailing. And that just makes me think that they don't want us to know that there was like a whole crew off screen, which is fine. Like sailing's hard. I don't know anything about sailing. I would love to be the type of person, you know, who like knows what a jib is or whatever. I don't. Um, I don't know how to do it. I, I, the lifestyle calls to me. The actual sailing seems like a lot of work, um, but it's a different skill set. Tom Cruise can't know everything. But yeah, I, I like don't think that he sailed. Anyway, I thought that Jennifer Connelly had almost nothing to do and was still winning and I really, really want some of those sweaters. Um, she's, I, I assume in part in this movie because she was in Only the Brave, the previous Kaczynski yeah. movie and she's so good in Only the Brave. She has an amazing sequence in that movie with Josh Brolin. You can feel her getting cast almost entirely off of that. I think she's a pretty credible love interest for 60-year-old Tom Cruise too. You know, she's 50 now. She of course looks amazing but it's mm-hmm. not like so absurd. We don't have this massive age gap or anything. 
is she credible as the owner of the like Miramar local bar? Well, again, if you if you think of this movie as a fantasy, okay, I mean, then sure, yes. like then I then yes, okay, great. Right. If you think of this movie kind of as like, as a documentary about yeah. a woman who owns a bar, no, it's this not. is like this is like one thing that I forgot to mention in our original Tom Cruise podcast about Eyes Wide Shut, which is like, would you want Tom Cruise as your general practitioner? Like, well, is I mean, he? A, the movie kind of makes a, a joke about that, where it's like it well, has no, that, know, that sequence but, where he's like, yeah. uh, you know, like. I guess examining all of his patients and some of them seem right, like but bored and some like, seem titillated. Right. Sure. Th- that's like one version of that joke. But the other is still just like uh, Tom Cruise can do many things, but like, do I want him as like my regular doctor? I don't know. He just doesn't read doctor to me, but whatever. Um, <laughs> Dr. Bill. I love Dr. Bill. Um, okay. W- I, don't I don't think I w- you're supposed to love Dr. Bill. I just want to say that for you. <laughs> well, there's something. Um, do you want Pete Maverick to be, Maverick Mitchell to be your pilot is, a, is an honest question because Maverick is he's a risk taker man he does a couple of things yeah. in this movie where you're like hey buddy maybe the whole yeah. f- the opening sequence of this film is a series of like don't 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 okay don't great, do it, great don't do yeah. it don't do yeah. it okay yeah um, no yeah, if, he, if, he, I, if he just I, hopped know. on a jet blue flight and it was like I'm your captain Pete Mitchell would you be like yes this is great no I, I wouldn't enjoy it but uh, that's just because I do like tend to throw up with motion sickness so um what about john ham john ham has the i think the the most unfortunate role in this film which is as the guy who tells maverick he can't do the thing he wants to do uh right did you, did you think ham was effective can we talk about john ham for a second yeah can we talk course. about the last i don't know 10 years of john ham's career where yep. so he's either playing like the fbi guy who is trying to like ruin everybody's fun, which is sort of, I mean, obviously he's in the Navy here. Um, what do they call him? Like the air boss. Uh, that, that sounds, that's what you'll sure. be calling me going forward okay, on the show. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so, but he's just like, he's always the FBI guy who just shows up to like, give some tough talk and, you know, stand in everybody's way. Um, or he's in a progressive commercial making fun of himself. And if it's, not, you know, like progressive Apple, like I, whatever is going on with him, he's clearly making a lot of money, but it's just not what I expected. And I actually think those progressive commercials are really funny. I, whoever is doing progressives ad campaign right now, this is not SpawnCon. I just like, I'm really impressed, but um, it, weird. Why is he take? why are these the decisions that he's making? He's fine in them. He's effective. Like, I know now when John Hamm shows up, John Hamm shows up in some sort of like uniform, like, oh boy, okay, he's here to like tough talk people, but they're going to figure out a way to get past John Hamm. But I don't know. It seems like he might like to be having a little more fun. It's been a very long time since he played the hero of a movie. You know, he played a cop in No Sudden Move. He played an FBI agent in Richard Jewell. He played the, the, the sort of bad partner, the sort of like the counterpoint in Lucy in the Sky. He was a bureaucrat in the report. He was, I think he was a detective in Bad Times at the El Royale. Like, he hasn't been. He's the FBI guy in the town, you know. Legendary. He's a man in a windbreaker. And it's interesting because he's, it's been leading towards something which is Confess Fletch, which is the new Fletch movie that Greg Matola is directing that he's starring in, in which, of course, he's playing Fletch, the legendary Chevy Chase character, Gregory McDonald uh, novel figure. And I'm hopeful that that will be a pivot for him because, of course, I love him. Mad Men, that's my yeah, favorite I show. Yeah, I do too. Um, but it's funny that he took this role. He's very good at it. I mean, this is the, this role more than any is the thing that feels like 1986 to me. 
where it's like this guy has no shades. There's no like I have no idea what his motivation is other than just being a prick. He's got to look at Tom Cruise and Tom Cruise's. You've got to be you are rooting so hard against everything John Hamm says the entire time. And it's fine. It's just like the most movie convention bullshit in the movie. Yeah. And you know, like, will he win him over in the end? Gosh, I wonder. Um, <laughs> but he's good. He's effective. Um, what else? What else do you want to say about Top Gun Maverick before we uh, wrap up? Um, well, I mean, there are. We are going to do a spoiler version, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll talk about some of the reveals and the choices and the other two times I cried. How about that? Great. Um, I think this is a really good Tom Cruise performance. I think I that agree. this is like obviously this is a movie built around letting Tom Cruise be Tom Cruise and revisit the role that you know at least in terms of blockbusters introduced him as the phenomenon that he is. But I think he's not just doing bland, outsized, sort of jumping off of stuff. Tom Cruise, there is he like if he is not intentionally playing all of the Tom Cruise like meta commentary, then the role itself is clearly affecting him and there are like emotional shades that I haven't seen in a performance of his in like the last 10 years probably and it really worked and I think like part of the emotional experience for me of like being back to the movie theaters and being like being back with Tom Cruise is that he is like clearly swept up in that as well completely agree I think this is the best he's been in a long time Maverick is not the most isn't the deepest character in the world but the idea of a a man out of time and a man without a family and a little bit without purpose and with a lot of regret is a rich character for somebody like this to play. You know, we talked about um, earlier this week on the show, what does his 60 to 80 look like? And, you know, this is not Paul Newman doing the verdict. I don't want to over overestimate the work of Top Gun Maverick. It's a different kind of thing. The verdict is a very, very powerful movie from an incredibly gifted actor and series of filmmakers about really living with regret. It's a deep movie. But it's in the same realm. Is it? Well, I was going to say, is it like sort of color of money ish? I mean, it again, it it's, you know, it's, it is to Tom Cruise what color of money is to Paul Newman. Obviously, there are differences. Um, but I mean, and obviously, Tom Cruise is in color of money, in case you didn't know. But so there is some symmetry there. But yeah, I, I think he's fantastic. And, can we can I, can I can I ask you about that then? Just because the yeah. last thing is when you see the color of money for the first time, you're just like, you know, Paul Newman, of course, is the all time screen presence, but Tom Cruise is electrifying in the color of money. What do you Sorry, think? Of my- I, something just fell behind you. Like I don't know. Like was there just like a squirrel that just did a death dive behind you? Literally, the squirrel was inspired by our conversation. Okay. Because it just, just left off of the it roof. It was like honestly, like someone just I, I got distracted. Okay, so the squirrel is his own maverick. Yeah, there's a mig on top of the roof, and there's okay. a squirrel trying to do battle. Um, <laughs> that is what just happened, literally. Uh, what do you think of Miles Teller? Because I want to kind of wrap on that. Because is Miles Teller like kind of worthy of Tom Cruise in the color of money role? Because that is the position that he's put in here. He's not right. quite as flashy, but he has to do a lot of emotional weightlifting in this movie. Do you think he lived up to that? Ultimately, yes. And I think we'll talk more specifics about what this movie allows him to do. And the thing about he's both he's taking on like the Maverick character in the original Top Gun, but 
you still got to make room for the actual Maverick. And this movie is about Tom Cruise and Maverick. So, you know, there's some like balance things that have to happen where Miles Teller doesn't get to do everything right from the start in the way that Tom Cruise did in the original Top Gun. But I thought he was pretty effective at the end. Um, I like, I, and I was like, oh, I would watch a movie with Miles Teller in in this role and with Glenn Powell as his. I, I was about to say Iceman, but I'm sorry, Glenn Powell's name is Hangman. Um, so that works. I thought it worked too. We'll talk more about it next week. Last question for you: What's your call sign? I don't know what mine is, but yours is spreadsheet. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, mine is uh, mine is Lord. If you have to ask. Um, well, no, but can you have one syllable besides Bob? Yeah, Bob. If you're going to be Bob, in this you're, movie. Yeah, Lewis Pullman Bob, plays you, Bob. You might as well be spreadsheet. Isn't goose one syllable? I guess goose is. Okay. So you're Lord. That like, that doesn't. Just think of L-O-R-D right on the helmet. You're telling me that I word I mean, work? that's cool. But hey, Lord, it's, it, it's confusing, you know, when you're yelling out a bunch of things all at once. Spreadsheet is not confusing. We know when we say spreadsheet, we're talking about you, the that's person. So, that's and, so mean. You're just. Okay. If mine's spreadsheet, yours is homework. Okay. That's actually, <laughs> that's fine. That's totally fair. <laughs> Okay. I'll accept it. <laughs> Thanks, Amanda. Oh, Bobby we'll be... is Bobby's slugger, he says, is apparently slugger? invented by his sister. Bobby, that's really good. You're the coolest of the three of us. That is pretty good. I like slugger. Um, okay. All right. Homework. Well, I'll take it. One of the reasons why we didn't want to spoil the movie on this podcast is because Bobby hasn't seen the movie. And I don't know anybody who's looking forward to this movie more than Bobby Wagner. So maybe we'll get Bobby's take when we come back on the show next week. Amanda, you and I will talk again soon. Thanks so much for chatting. Let's go to my conversation now with Joseph Kaczynski. At Walt Disney World Resort, magic is found in spontaneity, the unplanned, the unexpected, an inside joke born in the Haunted Mansion queue, a surprise stitch sighting in Tomorrowland, watching fireworks from your room. These memories aren't made from predetermined plans, but manifested from simply being present and together in the most magical place. Find your moment at Walt Disney World Resort. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Would I try to squeeze in an extra movie? Maybe try to read a book? The best way to squeeze that special thing in your schedule is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority. And therapy can help you figure that out. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. Otherwise, you'll always be wishing for more time. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash big picture today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash big picture. This episode is brought to you by Peppa Pig. Peppa Pig inspires people of all ages to jump through life and its muddy puddles with enthusiasm. The relatable stories, oinks and giggles have made her preschooler's first best friend, helping them navigate everyday life with unabashed exuberance. And now you can discover new playtime adventures with your little ones. Jump into spring and hunt for muddy puddles in Peppa's caravan playset. Hit the road for endless adventures and have heaps of fun with Peppa's whole family. Oinks and giggles are guaranteed. 
Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence since 2004. Peppa Pig is a trademark of Hasbro created by Mark Baker and Neville Astley. This episode is supported by H&R Block. Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with their no-surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a Block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season is better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com slash guarantees. Delighted to have Joseph Kaczynski here on the podcast. Joe, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm delighted to have you because you've got two movies coming out, but the big one first is Top Gun Maverick. I'm going to start with a very simple question. How did you become the director of Top Gun Maverick? Can you walk us through that? Well, it starts in May of 1986. Uh, I was 12 years old. Uh, I was at the Orpheum Theater in Marshalltown, Iowa, and I saw Top Gun. Um, And, you know, like everyone else, it blew me away. Obviously, I was like the perfect age to see it. Um, And, you know, it always lived in my memory, I think, as kind of the quintessential summer movie. You know, I guess it was... uh, 25 years later, I found myself on set with Tom Cruise shooting a movie, (laughs) uh, Oblivion, which we made together, which was an incredible experience. And Tom says we talked about Top Gun. I don't recall the specific conversation, but our crew t-shirt was Oblivion in the Top Gun font with a bubble ship instead of an F-14. So (laughs) clearly it was, you know, and and if you look at Oblivion, uh, there's certainly some Top Gun moments in it for sure. so, uh, cut to May of 2017, I'm just finishing, uh, a movie called only the brave. I'm up at Skywalker sound and Jerry Bruckheimer sends me a script called top gun two. And, um, I read the script and have some ideas. It's an early draft. I go into Jerry, uh, Jerry's office, who someone obviously grew up watching his films, um, always wanted to work with him, of course, and kind of told him my initial thoughts, which he liked a lot and said, you know, we got to talk to, you need to talk to Tom about this directly. So I said, great. So he said, we got to fly to Paris. Tom's shooting there and, and we should go talk to him in person about this. So Jerry and I flew to Paris in the May of, May of 2017 and Tom was shooting, uh, shooting right in the center of Paris. And we got about a half hour of his time in the middle of the day. And we stepped into a little hotel room or something that was right nearby. And I basically had about 25 minutes to pitch kind of my take on what the movie could be. Um, And, you know, having made a movie with Tom, I knew, you know, I kind of knew what types of things he would respond to. And I knew that the most important thing was the emotional kind of core of the story. What would that be? So um, I pitched the idea of the rooster storyline, which you've seen the movie, you know what that is. I think people who've seen the trailer get a sense of it, but that being the kind of a more emotional core of the film uh, and the reason for Maverick to come back to Top Gun. Uh, the second thing I pitched was the opening, the first kind of 20 minutes, which is what has Maverick been up to? Cause I think that's something that 
previous versions had a hard time cracking because it's like, what's he still doing in the Navy, you know? So that's that's kind of that that whole Dark Star sequence I pitched to him. Um, obviously, I pitched the idea of shooting it practically. Um, I showed him a couple of videos, GoPro videos of Navy pilots who had put little suction cup cameras on their canopies and were getting these little glimpses of their training flights. And and I showed that to him and I said, this is on the internet for free, like these clips. Like if we can't beat this, there's no point in making this film. And And he agreed, obviously, 100%. Um, and then finally it was the title, you know, I said, we can't call it Top Gun 2. It's gotta be Top Gun Maverick. It's a character driven story wrapped in this big action film, just like the first film. And, uh, Tom looked at Jerry and he picked up the phone. He called Paramount and said, we're making this movie. So that was pretty amazing to see that level of power. Anyone who knows how hard it is to get a movie made to see Tom essentially do it with a phone call. And that was five years ago. So that was the beginning of this kind of epic journey um, to making this movie. Is that a common experience for pitching yourself for a film? And also, are you trained in the art of pitching your take on a movie in that specific way? It's a very important part of the job that you learn. Uh, and I learned when I first moved to Los Angeles in 2005. Um, I feel very lucky because I started in the world of commercials. I came out to you know shoot music videos um, but that, that industry had kind of died off at that point. So commercials was, was the way into making films. And I spent the first 15 months here in Los Angeles pitching on commercials. I probably pitched on 25 commercials and got none of them, lost every one. And it was an amazing learning experience to, for me to understand that it's not just about having the vision and the idea. You have to learn how to sell your idea. That's almost more important. I feel like um, it's a skill that I don't know if it's taught in film school. I don't know if people realize that, but you have to be able to communicate what it is you're going for. Um, so every film I've done, there is a moment like this, not quite with the stakes of Top Gun Maverick, but there, you know, even on Tron Legacy. That one really started with me talking to Jeff Bridges and convincing him to be in that first teaser that we made for Comic-Con. Um, that's where that whole project started. So every, every project starts with you either in a room full of studio executives or sitting across from a movie star trying to convince them why they should put their trust in you for you know the next two years. So you mentioned that you're a fan of the original. The film, your film, you know, it's very much true to the spirit and and some of the tone of the original, and it opens with this deep homage to the way the first film opens. But your style is very different from Tony Scott's style, and your I like your movie better, candidly. But um, I, I I'm curious how much you felt like kind of a fealty to replicating a lot of what people are expecting when they think of Top Gun versus how do you put your own spin on it and your own vision of it? And also what a movie represents in 2022 versus 1986. Yeah, it was something certainly we talked a lot about, which is, you know, Tom and I agreed from the beginning, we didn't want to be the cover band version of Top Gun. Um, at the same time, there's so much love for the first film. 
I wanted people to know from the opening frames that we love Top Gun as much as you do and that this is a Top Gun movie, um, but we're telling a new story. So yes, those opening few minutes, definitely, I love the idea of just bringing the audience, you know, wrapping our arms around them and saying, this is a Top Gun film. But I think shortly after that, as soon as Maverick pulls into that hangar in China Lake, you realize that this movie's going in its own direction. So um, I think the first 20 minutes of the movie really are designed to tell you that we respect the past, but we're telling a new story. Um, aesthetically, yes, Tony Scott. I mean, I think he, what he did for blockbuster filmmaking aesthetically is maybe not fully appreciated. You know, Jerry Bruckheimer hired him off The Hunger, which is, you know, like almost a European art film in the way it's photographed. And for Tony to bring that style to a Hollywood tentpole is, was pretty groundbreaking. And obviously he continued that with Days of Thunder and Crimson Tide and, you know, True Romance, just incredible vision. Uh, so there are parts of this film, you know, I definitely wanted to feel like it is in the Top Gun universe where the sun is always setting, you know, um, people are always sweating <laughs> and, uh, and there's just this glow, this kind of San Diego fantasy world that I wanted our world, to, our film to also live within. But at the same time, yeah, I, I knew I had to innovate on my own and not just mimic the style of the first film. So, um, so yeah, I think you'll see a very different feel once you get inside the planes, for instance, you know, the wide angle cameras, those, that 10 mil fisheye is probably something that Tony would never touch, but it's such an important angle for the film that that kind of one looking back that just pulls the entire world in because we were able to capture it all for real. And, and Tony just didn't have the technology back then to, to do that. So you have this architectural design-based digital background. A lot of those commercials that you worked on early on were very digitally oriented. Your first couple of films are very digitally oriented. Lots of CGI. They're set in science fiction worlds. Top Gun, in some ways, is kind of the opposite of that. It's like American ingenuity, steel, physical man-built product. Did did you feel like you had to make any kind of transition or like reimagine how you saw the world to capture some of those things? I don't think so personally. I mean, yeah, Tron Legacy required a lot of digital work because it is in a world that could not be photographed, but I tried really hard to make the world feel photographed. You know, we built all the sets in that film. We did real lit suits. Like I, I, I tried my hardest to not make the film feel digital. I wanted it to feel like you took a camera into that world and photographed it. Oblivion, very much the same. Not as much CGI as you would expect, just in the technique we used with, you know, using front projection at the, in the sky tower and building the bubble ship and building that bike and shooting in Iceland. So I've always strived for photorealism, even in the digital work that I did. Um, so, uh, and then only the brave was, you know, 90% in camera. Um, and, and really just me kind of wanting just to make a real drama. So no, it, I don't feel like I had to change my aesthetic. And in fact, I think having the background in digital is really helpful so that when we 
did have to use CGI. Um, it's hopefully people don't know where we did, you know, because hopefully we've we've integrated it in a way that feels very photographic. I have a couple of questions about Only the Brave, but I'm going to wait on that. Sure. Um, you mentioned pitching to Tom Cruise. It's obviously legendarily exacting and hard charging as a producer and as a star and also brings an incredibly strong vision for a movie. You already worked with him before, but that was an original story, something that you conceived. Top Gun is woven into the fabric of his iconography. What do you, what's it like to work with him on something like this? What is a day on the set like? Do you, if you disagree, how do you settle something like that? I mean, he, everyone knows this. He's very, very passionate. And yes, this is me stepping into his world, but you know, also Jerry Bruckheimer who's producing. Um, so, uh, having worked with Tom, I knew, I knew from the start that it's always a partnership with him, which is fantastic because he's made 50 films. He's worked with literally every cinematic hero that you could have. And when you look at that list of directors, it's, it's pretty mind-boggling just how he hit every single one over the last 40 years. And he learned from each one of them. You know, he's like a sponge. He absorbs. That's all he wanted to do in his first couple decades is just learn as much as he could about filmmaking. So for me, making my fourth film, you know, it's it's me trying to pull a lot of extract what he learned from them out of him. But if Tom wanted to, he could direct movies. Absolutely. I mean, he's got the experience, um, the technical knowledge. He could do it all if he wanted to. But I believe he really loves the collaborative experience. He loves working with a director. He loves having someone to bounce ideas off of. He loves the push and pull of the creative process. And out of that push and pull, uh, the movies, I think, are forged to be stronger. It's like he loves to test every aspect of the movie to make sure it's absolutely watertight. So you have to be on your toes every single day. You need to have a plan A and a plan B, and you'll probably end up doing plan C. But it'll be the best of the three because of the process. So it it's a... Um, it's, I think for a director, uh, you have to go in with a very strong point of view on the movie you want to make. And you just have to be prepared to have that tested every day with him, with the goal being what's the best film at the end of the day. And, and so, um, you know, as long as everyone's pushing in the same direction, I think the process works really well. You know, in Oblivion, so much of that film is just Tom on screen in the, in, in the, pilot's chair or you know on a comm screen yeah this movie has this tricky challenge where maverick is the central figure and he is the lore but you have to introduce all these new pilots you have all these older characters that we have to remind people about how do you balance like the weight of the charisma of tom cruise to make a movie legible and exciting when someone that isn't him is on camera you cast you cast it with the absolute best actors you can find and um you know, casting is the most important part of a director's job. Uh, I I say it's eighty percent of kind of what the job is. Jerry Bruckheimer just told me the other day he said it's ninety percent. So I'll defer to Jerry. He knows. <laughs> um, and so you know, I was coming off only the brave. I just worked with Miles Teller. I just worked with Jennifer Connelly. Um, both fantastic, incredible actors, and um, 
you know, I felt like the roles in this film were both suited to them. It wasn't the same as what they were doing before, different roles, but I just knew as, as actors that, that they would be able to go toe-to-toe with Tom. Um, you know, some of the other, you know, obviously bringing back Val Kilmer is, was incredible. We got John Hamm, we've got Ed Harris, you know, which is my, you know, one dream, you know, to work with someone who is in the right stuff. Uh, uh, so just surrounding him with actors who the, every second they spend on screen, they're making an impression. And that's what you need to do in a Tom Cruise film is you got to make the most of every second you have. Uh, and then the younger pilots, you know, that was a, uh, just a long process of going through hundreds of tapes and trying to find those faces that maybe people hadn't seen before that were going to do the same thing that were going to, from the moment they appear on screen are going to make an immediate impression and get you to invest in them. Because if you invest in the other characters besides Tom Cruise, those action sequences at the end mean so much more. Uh, so yeah, we narrowed, I narrowed it down to, you know, the top two or three for each role. And then I sat with Jerry and Tom and we made the final choice together and having their experience in that, you know, Jerry Bruckheimer notoriously has an amazing eye for talent. Uh, Tom also instinctually knows right away if someone is right. So, uh, luckily I think we chose correctly and, and I couldn't be more thrilled with every, um, person that we cast in this film. So I'm revisiting your films this week. It's obvious that you love things that fly. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of flying There objects. is a lot of flying objects. Yeah, you're correct. In every movie I've made, there's there's a, at least one or two aerial sequences. Well, where does that come from? Why do you like that? You know, uh, I made model airplanes as a kid. I started making little plastic models with my dad when I was like five. Then in high school, started making, you know, these very sophisticated remote control planes with, you know, gas engines and retractable gear and all this stuff. Um, I went and studied aerospace engineering at, at, in college. Um, so I've always been fascinated with, uh, flight and, um, and yeah, I guess it's just, it's not something that's conscious. I guess it's more of a subconscious thing and it just seems to express itself in each film. But, you know, luckily I did because it took me three movies of playing with aerial sequences to be prepared to make this one, which is obviously the most complex by far. Yeah, it's very trite to say, but it definitely feels like you were born to direct this movie. But to that point, this is going to sound like a dumb question, but there's a lot of lay people like myself who don't understand air travel or planes or anything at all. And I have, I genuinely do not know how you film the sequences of flight in this movie. Like, mm -hmm. So in a, in a compact way, how do you how do you do this? <laughs> like literally, how do you practically make this movie? Well, uh, the I guess the most innovative thing we did was we we met, found a way to fit six IMAX quality cameras inside the cockpit of an F eighteen Super Hornet, and that was like a fifteen month process of working very closely with the Navy to figure out how to do that. We also were very lucky in that Claudio, my DP, and I had been working with Sony on a new camera called the Venice and particularly a new version of it called the Rialto, which um, basically allows you to split the camera into two pieces. So you have the sensor and the lens separate from the recorder and they're connected by a fiber optic cable. So what you end up with is a, a very small box with a lens on it that is capturing 
a 6K large format IMAX quality image in a very, very small form factor. So we had been working with Sony right when we were developing this movie, and uh, we sat with the Navy and figured out how to get six cameras in the plane. So four of them are facing the actor. You've got a the 10 mil wide angle. You've got a close-up right below it. Then you've got two kind of over the shoulders going out over both wings, allowing you to see both the actor and the action off each side of the airplane. Then we had two cameras over the pilot in the front seat, and the pilot's dressed in the same gear as the actor, so that when you cut between those angles, you end up with this sense of shooting over the shoulder of the actor. So you get, you're, you're doing a little bit of a cheat, but you're creating the sense that the actor is flying the airplane. Um, all of them were connected to a switch on the cockpit so that when the actor was ready to roll, they'd hit one switch and all six cameras would turn on simultaneously. So the actors were actually controlling the rolling and cutting of the camera by themselves because they were up there with their pilot and that's it, just the two of them. I wasn't there. I wasn't communicating. We couldn't see anything they were doing. Um, there's no feed. There's no feed. That you can watch while that's no, happening. No, there's no feed. Uh, as soon as they would land, we'd pull the... Uh, chips out of each of the cameras, load them into the a playback device and a big screen in the debrief room, and we'd sit and we'd watch the whole what they had just shot, watch it down real time in front of everybody. So it was real time critique of everything they had done on that flight. And we would, you know, I would give them notes on things that need to be changed, and we would all cheer when they did something right. So it was this very kind of, you know, as a group. Everyone was kind of involved together watching everyone's performance. Um, so that's how we did the interiors. We would do uh, a flight in the morning and a flight in the afternoon. Every flight had like an, two hours of briefing and an hour of debriefing. So it was very long days. And, you know, they were getting two hours of shooting each day. And out of that, there's maybe, you know, a minute or two that was usable. Um, in addition, I had cameras mounted on the outside of F-18. So Top Gun pilots would would fly their low-level routes or their combat sequences with the cameras on the outsides of the planes, getting those very classic Top Gun angles of what it's like to be mounted to the plane. And those angles are really important because those are the only time the cameras are really able to go five or 600 miles an hour. Um, then we also had air-to-air -air sequences where we had a helicopter with a camera mounted on it or another jet with a camera mounted on the nose when we needed faster sequences, shooting air-to-air -air sequences. Then we also had ground air units, sometimes four cameras of all varying focal lengths on a mountaintop shooting uh, the sequences, much like the, very, the first Top Gun, which is kind of how they did most of the first film. So all in, and you've, you know, we had over 20 cameras running someday, which is why we were generating so much footage. You know, that quote about shooting 800 hours of footage got a lot of traction, but that was as a result of how we shot the movie. That wasn't like some sort of prideful thing where we're like look how much movie we shot you know that was um that's just because we had so many cameras running to try to capture these moments that sounds tremendously hard <laughs> it just seems like a lot of effort and there's got to be something disorienting i don't know if you had had this experience on previous films but the idea of footage being captured that you don't can't see and are not in control of that feels so antithetical in some ways to the idea of what a film director does, which is you watch a performance or you watch a sequence being executed, it works or it doesn't work, and then you fix it. What was that like for you as a director? Well, it there wasn't, uh, it wasn't that random because 
after the two-hour brief of talking through every single shot, every line, every eye line, where the sun is going to be, what the terrain is, what the choreography is, um, then we'd sit, I'd go with the actor and their, their naval aviator down to something called a buck, which was a, basically a plywood version of the F-18 cockpit that had the instruments and switches and everything. They would climb in that, and I would just sit right next to them with the script, and we'd just walk through everything they were going to do. And we'd rehearse it to the point that it was like muscle memory. So it was so well rehearsed that um, that it wasn't as random as you think. Then it would come back. It wasn't usually a performance issue that we would give notes on. It was, oh, you know, the sun was in the wrong place. Or you forgot to put your visor down. Or your straps are loose. Or, you know, it'd be better if you guys were a little bit lower so we could see those mountains. So um, in that sense, the aerial stuff was very prescribed. Um, and, uh, you know, it usually took them one or two passes in the jet to get what we needed. Then we move on to the next thing. There were just so many other factors that were making it difficult between weather and, um, you know, distance to the location and how much fuel you had and do you have to refuel to get back? And there's just a lot of logistics, but, um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't as random as that. It was very, very kind of specific what we were going for each mission. I always want to know from someone as skilled as you about the art of the action sequence and the design that goes into sequences like that. So, you know, in many cases in scripts, you'll see sometimes there's extraordinarily detailed description of what's supposed to happen in an action sequence, oftentimes not. So for someone, for a filmmaker like you, and for a film like this where the action is so consequential to the story that is being told, it's not just something blows up and then we move on to the next thing. It is very detailed, mission-oriented. What is your responsibility to creating or participating in the design of an action sequence? Well, the, the only thing I look for in a script when it comes to action is what's the story you're telling during the sequence. That's the most important thing. I'm, I'm not as concerned with the mechanics of the action because that I can work that out later. The question is, what is the story you are telling? Because if you're not telling story, then it's just action for action's sake. Um, so that's worked out in the script ahead of time. Um, once you know what the story is, then for me, it was sitting down with real Top Gun pilots and talking through tactics, you know, how they train, different maneuvers. And then it's just, a, it's a long process. Then I start with storyboards. I think we did over 3,500 storyboards for this movie. Um, storyboarding it out. Then sequences where you need to do previs for a very specific piece of action or you want the camera to be in a very specific place, we'll previs certain sections. Then you're in the brief with all the pilots and actors. You're going through the boards, you're going through the previs, but you also have these things called stick models, which is what the real pilots use, which are little fighter jets on sticks. And you're kind of hand puppeting through it. And uh, that was something Tom could do. That was something the pilots could do. The actors could do it. So everyone understood what the choreography was. Um, and then you go up and you shoot. And, um, and then you kind of reinvent in the edit, you know, because sometimes a piece of action that you, sh- that you shot for a different exercise works great uh, in, in this sequence. And then it just becomes an editorial thing, which, you know, in this case was as you can imagine, a monumental task, just how to put all the pieces together in a way that made sense, told the story, and kept the pace up. So um, it was a lot of work. There's, you know, thousands of people that worked on this movie, so. 
you mentioned only the brave earlier and and bringing two cast members along from that movie. I really like that movie a lot. I think it's really, really underrated. Um, It felt like a pretty big departure from at least the worlds that you had been in before. And I was wondering if you could just talk about kind of what you learned from that, because it feels like Maverick could not have happened if you had not made that movie. I I assume you agree with that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, that was a huge film for me. Huge learning experience. Um, Yeah. After Oblivion, you know, as happens in this business, people pigeonhole you very, very quickly. And um, science fiction is something I loved to do, um, but it was not the only thing I was interested in. And when I read the story for Only the Brave, it reminded me a lot of the town I came from. Uh, even though I'm not from Arizona, the the small town quality of it. Quality of it. Uh, and um, it just felt very moved by the story. So, um, uh, and I wanted to tackle something different and it was a real, you know, it's a real drama, uh, a huge challenge for me, um, as I think would be for any director, because it was only three years after the tragedy, going to meet with the families, hearing their stories and shooting some real, uh, difficult scenes. I mean, that scene when Brendan returns to the gym at the end of the film was probably one of the most difficult things I've ever had to tackle as a director, uh, uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, but, uh, you know, again, working with that cast, Josh Brolin, Jennifer Connelly, getting to work with Jeff Bridges again, meeting Miles Teller, uh, and just being able to, um, work with an ensemble because there's so many guys, you know, in that, crew uh was just a huge learning experience for me and a wonderful experience as a director and yeah certainly informed the approach to top gun because top gun is a drama you know and that's that's what i realized looking back at the film as a director who had made three films as opposed to the 12 year old kid who saw it for the first time the movie really is a a drama wrapped in this kind of glossy action exterior but it is a rite of passage story of this guy. And, and I knew Maverick, Top Gun Maverick had to be the same thing. One thing I noticed about the movie, this is neither criticism of anything, but it feels deeply apolitical. You know, the mission is kind of indeterminately based. It, we don't know what year it is really, you know, like it's, it, we don't know what administration is in charge. And I think that works great. <laughs> like yeah. I think that there are some people who will say, why didn't you, use more specificity and it feels like Hollywood is even in this troubled moment where it's like, if we make someone the bad guy, the film won't play in that country or something like that. Can you talk about that decision to make the movie so standalone, so inside of its own creative bubble? Yeah, absolutely. Um, certainly that was the intent. I mean, the, the film is really a competition film. It's, it's more of a sports movie in terms of its structure. It's about friendship. It's about sacrifice it's not about geopolitics. It never was, even though the first film was made in the heart of the 80s. Um, the enemy in that film was also kind of faceless and nameless. Um, so we wanted the focus to be on a character-driven story about Maverick kind of dealing with all these relationships. So um, we designed the mission to, 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 to be with a, you know, nameless, faceless uh, power uh, and, you know, I'm glad we did because the world's changing every year. I mean, we shot this movie in 2018. You could never anticipate what the state of the world would be today. 
I want this to be a film that people watch 10 or 20 years from now and can still enjoy and not feel like it was a product of the early 2020s. Um, so that was our goal. Tell me a little bit about that, this, this interregnum we've had. You know, you finished shooting this a long time ago. Um, you made in a whole other movie after this, yeah. which is also coming out next month, Spiderhead. And this, more than any other movie that has been sidelined by the pandemic, feels like the one that I know people in my life, my co-host on this show, is like, when can I see this damn movie? I really, really, really want to see this. Obviously, like the audience and the people who made it, that there's some there's a difference there. But what's it been like for you waiting and waiting and waiting? Well, it's very difficult, you know, as we talked about when I first came in. Um, it's hard to hold on to something uh, because, you know, the, the project's not really over. It's very hard to move on until your movie's kind of out there and you can kind of move on the next thing. But this film was designed from the start to be a big screen experience and to be experienced with the biggest movie sound that you can find. And so the idea of releasing it in any other way just never seemed as an option. So we knew we had to hold it and wait. And now it just feels like the timing is right. People are excited to go back to the movies. Obviously we just had another huge weekend for the movie business, which is great to see. Um, and, you know, I would say if, if you haven't gone to the f movies in a while, this is a movie you should see uh, on the big screen and you should hear because you just can't replicate that kind of sound at home unless you've spent a lot of money on your home system. Um, this is a movie that's meant to be seen in the theaters and we're excited for people to, to go back to the movies and experience it with a big audience. Yeah, I saw it in the Dolby room and it was very powerful. Yeah. <laughs> it really, really worked. Great. Conversely, you know, you do have a film coming out for Netflix. I'm curious, I'm always interested in directors and kind of what their relationship is to those two things. The idea of you've made, I think, really one of like the critical in-theater experience movies of the decade now. And now you have a movie coming out on a streaming service yeah. in a month. So yeah. what's your perception and conception of how that should work in, in 2022? Well, Spiderhead's a very unique uh, movie that does not fit into any box neatly. Um, it's not based on well-known IP. Uh, it's not, like I said, a, a fit into a specific genre. It's, it's much more idiosyncratic. And that's the type of film that I think does lend itself to streaming. You know, it's not a movie that you want to, you hope finds an audience, you know, weekend one, weekend two, before it disappears and, and gets lost. This is a movie that you know, on June 17th will be available to 220 million people simultaneously, no matter where you live, no matter where you are in the world. Uh, so for a film like that, it makes a lot of sense. And, and so I feel like it's, it's about what's the correct medium for the story you're trying to tell. And it's my first experiment with streaming, but, um, I don't think I would have been able to make it, um, through a traditional theatrical process. So for me as a director, being able to kind of uh, try something totally different um, from a creative point of view was a credible experience. This may be total happenstance, but I happen to notice you've now made a movie for Paramount, Disney, Sony, Universal, and Netflix, which is basically the big five right now. Is that by design? Are you trying to be for hire? Is that happenstance? Not not all filmmakers bounce that cleanly through it's, the system. For me, it's just about the story. You know, it's like following the next story. It's um, 
trying something different. So yeah, it's interesting how I've I've worked at each different place. But also, you know, the studios, the the name above the gate doesn't define it as much as the people that work there. Mm-hmm. So you know, the 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 people are are always changing. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't. That that's not by design. That's just me kind of looking for you know what's the next story that that gets me interested. You know, what's that thing that makes you get up at four in the morning and go stand on a set for 15 hours drinking, you know, bad coffee. Like what is that thing that's got the, gives you the passion to, to get up and do this job every day. Um, so that's what I'm always chasing. Do you have another one of those right now? I'm developing a, a couple things. Um, right now, the, the one that's kind of, um, in front of me is a, a movie set in the world of formula one, which is, uh, very, developing, very hot right now. <laughs> yes. With, uh, we're developing it with uh, Apple, so it's a you know yet another another studio for me. Um, we end every episode of this show, Joe, by asking filmmakers what's the last great thing they've seen. Based on how you're talking, I get the sense you watch a lot of films. As a director, do you get to watch a lot of films? No, I I don't. You know, it's like I wish I could see more. Um, when I'm working on a film, it's hard for me to watch other films. You know, I almost find that like documentaries or maybe even a little bit of tv or something is is kind of like a nice change of pace um the last thing that i saw that struck me was on a flight to the uk a couple weeks ago i finally saw the green knight oh i would love to hear what you thought of that i was you know i i had no expectations i just put it on and i was really blown away because um i thought it was a very distinct unique vision and you know i as a kid, I was always drawn to directors who, when you saw a frame of a film they did, you knew it was them. You don't know maybe exactly how or why, but just a very distinct point of view. And um, I just thought that was a very distinct film, you know, that, you know, I know how hard it is to to do that in the system. And I thought uh, the performance by uh, Dev was something I hadn't seen him do before. So I was really um, blown away by that. And I got to meet him a few weeks after seeing the film and just told him how much I enjoyed the experience of watching that movie because I found it very unpredictable, which is a rare thing. I I felt the same way about Top Gun Maverick. I thought it was absolutely amazing, Joe. Thank you. So thanks so much for doing the show. It was great to chat with you. Thanks, man. Great talking. Thanks to Joe Kaczynski. Thanks to Amanda and to our producer, Bobby Wagner, for his work on this episode. And tune in next week for more Top Gun Maverick on The Big Picture. See you then. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I wanna wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.